G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across Southern Australia for this series. We'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. This is the final episode as part of this series. We're wrapping up with Terry Horan, who's joining us from central Tasmania. For more than 40 years, Terry has been actively involved in the agronomy space across both the mainland and Tasmanian low, medium and high rainfall cropping areas. He grew up in between Trundle and Parks and reflects on fond memories, supporting his neighbour with a harvest which took about seven to eight weeks, he said. His career then saw him heading off to university in Wagga before landing a government job which would ultimately lead him down the pathway of then moving into the private sector and leading various programs which have really benefited the Australian cropping industry. Then, as life stages started to change, he took up an opportunity at incredibly high interest rates to partner for a business in Tamora, which would see him leading the agronomy side of the business at a time where the industry was transitioning from livestock to grains. An opportunity knocked and he absolutely knew the sound. As life stages then changed again, Terry moved his family down to Tasmania, where they continued today. And that's where he joins us today as part of this GRDC In Conversation chat. Welcome back to GRDC In Conversations podcast. Each week we sit down with someone different who's been involved and really influential in the Australian grain industry. So far this series, we've heard from a whole bunch of people from farmers, growers, advisors, and today is no different. I'm joined by Terry Horan, who's spent more than 40 years working across the mainland and Tasmania in both medium rainfall and high rainfall zones, and a fascinating career that's covered quite a bit, Terry, from government to private sector to owning your own business. But it really has been a love of the grain industry that's kept you there the whole way. So how are you, mate? And where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from Briona, which is in the central highlands of Tasmania. Island. And last week when we chatted on the phone, you would, you'd been snowed in or iced in. Has it eased down a little bit or are you still facing some pretty wild weather? No, I've actually got the grader on the road today, so I could get a bit noisy out the front here, which is good. So whereabouts in Tasmania is it? Uh, the centre of the state. There's a big area called the Central Plateau, which is over a 1,000 metres elevation for the whole plateau up to, you know, we, there's a lot of iconic walks like the Overland Track and, and you know, Walls of Jerusalem National Park. So it's all World Heritage Area, but it's the heartland of the irrigation supply for the state of Tasmania, really. Yeah, wow, it's incredible. And so tell me, what's the best time of year up there? Uh, it depends what you like. If you like it cold and snowy, in the wintertime is the best. If you really like uh, outdoor adventures, and there's about 3,000 lakes up here, called they call it the land of the 3,000 lakes, and they've all got round trout in them, which have made their way up there since the 1850s. So it's a great, iconic, you know, fishing and walking, hiking, you know, destination. And I know from our chats before that you're a bit of an avid hiker, but let's chat on the fishing front. How do you go with the rod in hand? Are you pretty handy? Pretty keen fly fisherman. Yeah. So love fly fishing and 
Yeah, can't get enough of it. So hence living at Briona on the central plateau, right beside the Great Lake, which is where probably the greatest population of brown trout and rainbow trout are in Tasmania. And so you do catch them a little bit, or it's because it's not going to sound very good now if you say that you don't catch things very often. <laughs> Any fish is a bonus, Ollie, but yes, we, we love eating trout and uh, catching them and releasing them. So from where you are now, are you still actively involved in the grains industry from up there? And do you just work your way across the state from the central plateau there? Well, prior to a week ago, we had a house in Launceston, which is in the northern part of Tasmania, which is a really good place geographically for east, you know, west, south, the heartland of the cropping zone for Tasmania, which is only a very small cropping zone for winter cropping and spring cropping. But best location for agriculture here, but we'll make do until we get another house in the lowlands. Well, I'd love to turn it back a little bit, Terry, because I think you've spent most of your life on the mainland and you grew up around parks and trundle, famous for both the dish and the Elvis festival. But what was it in that neck of the woods that you loved about growing up out there? Uh, Well, I guess I loved everything but the heat and the lack of water. So 40 years in in a dryland environment was uh, part of prompting the relocation to Tasmania where the drought boom-bust cycle is lessened greatly because of the water supply, really. So when you look around Australia at the history of Australia, the banks have owned a lot of Australian land away from river systems uh, since since foundation, really, or since, since there's been ag in Australia. And Tasmania, when you look at the history, a lot of the farms are seventh and eighth generation. So that gives you an indication that the banks haven't been able to get their hands on it over seven or eight generations. And looking at it historically, I worked out that it was water. The enduring times of drought, stock still had water. Whereas if you go through Australia and the river systems, that once you got away from the river systems, it was a boom-bust cycle. And so for you, like, was that boom-bust cycle part of your father selling the family property? Yeah, so Trundle is in a um, yeah, low rainfall environment, you would call it, out, out in that area. So it's, it needs – my father was a soldier settler, so if you look at the history of soldier settlement in Australia, there were very large stations that were broken up into soldier settlers' blocks. And if you go back and have a look, there's very few places in Australia currently that would be still in the land area size that they were when they were broken to soldier settlements. So the property where my father located to after the Second World War from Ardleffen, which is a medium rainfall zone in the Riverina, the, that was called Eden Bar Station, which is now not quite a living area for the current owners. So there were five soldier settlers blocks there, which is now currently one property at Trundle, and it's still not living area so that's the scale that's we all know that's needed these days to have a viable uh, farming business were you always interested in in the ag side like was it quite early on that you realized that actually there was passion around agriculture but actually maybe the opportunities weren't inside the farm gate yeah it's always an interesting to look back on your career an interesting thing to do because i could have stayed in farming because i I love farming but uh, i decided that I could be more benefit to farmers by working with a lot of farmers versus just working by yourself or working as a farm manager for a bigger property or another property. 
So the opportunities were there uh, in my early years to become a farm manager or maybe even a landowner in your own right. But I saw a, you know, a, a need to educate myself and, and work with a lot of farmers, especially with the farming's very intensive business and they need a lot of assistance to have a great team around them to drive the property and their farm business and their survival. So any successful business had a, has a great team around them. I'd love to know, Terry, like with that, the ability to help many more farmers than just, I guess, the, the one business that you actually could have been working. Were there different points in your career where you actually thought about that exit and go, you know what, actually, I do just want to pull the reins back and go and focus in on one thing? Did that happen at all during your career? Well, I guess it didn't just happen, Ollie. Like I thought when I was going through a college or uni that working for the government was going to be the, the way to do it in extension. But then that my time in, in agriculture, New South Wales Ag, Department of Agriculture sort of coincided with the government deciding that extension was best left to private industry. So there was a big movement from you know Department of Agriculture agronomists to where they went into private industry. So I guess I was a part of that all the way before that I was still really keen on research and I was involved with research and extension. And I, I love that because in those days, the Department of Agriculture, you could get 100 you know, in the River Arena or Central New South Wales, we could get 100 or 120 or 180 farmers to a field day, which was pretty exciting you know, to be able to draw on an audience that was interested in attending a field day in a pretty remote location to learn something. So when I left the department, I went and worked with DuPont, a multinational company, but they were developing products for broadacre farming, which I you know, was very interested in. So that was a research and development and a sales role, working across pretty much half of New South Wales from Sydney to the Victorian border, including the western lands in, in Victoria and New South Wales. So it was a, a really good way to have a better look outside of you know, a very small area in Riverina or central west of New South Wales. So that was a great five years. You mentioned that the work that you're doing in government moved away from the research and development and extension space. So what was it that you learned when you actually came into private business with DuPont and how had, I guess, that previous experience actually shaped and benefited you in that work? The Department of Agriculture was a really good experience. It was terrific with the people that you're they were working for, you know, still admire them today, you know, wheat breeders and people like Ron Martin and even Albert Pugsley, who was a you know, they bought the winter wheats to Australia and the semi-dwarfs, and so that was the start of grazing and grain, really, in back in the early 1980s. So that was really good to be able to work with them, and, and I worked with livestock as well, so livestock research officers like John Mulholland and Alan Kaiser, and it was terrific. You know, and CSIRO, there were some great researchers there that you got to work with, but then the private industry gave you the opportunity to, working with DuPont, gave you the opportunity to, to get on a lot more farms and meet a lot more people and be able to respond to their needs quicker than it's very long process, you know, working with breeders and livestock researchers where it was a bit more dynamic working with DuPont. Was there one of them that you enjoyed more than the other? Um, no, I don't think so. I really, you know, I enjoyed working with government, New South Wales Ag, and I really enjoyed working with DuPont. But uh, I still didn't really think that was quite enough compared to uh, working for yourself. So that, hence in 19, 
89, we started a business with a farming family from Area Park, actually, and O'Malley's, who were a, a distributor out of Cootamundra. Good part of the world, that Cooter. Tell me a little bit more. How did that actually eventuate and come about, Terry? Uh, well, there was a, a good friend of mine who I'm still very good friends with, Jeff Tidd, who are, uh, the Tidds are you know, a long generational farming family from Area Park. And Jeff, my friend, had two brothers that were involved in the business in Area Park, grain and, and uh, rural supplies. And they wanted to expand their business. And there was a business in Tamora called Miller and James Farm Supplies, which they're real estate people. But So they wanted to get out of rural and just concentrate on real estate. So that was an opportunity in Tamora. And I guess I'd been there with the Department of Ag in with DuPont. So I I was pretty well accepted to be able to be capable of helping to look after the farming community in that way. What was it like? How did that transition go? You'd spent a bit of time in government, obviously a little bit of time in the private sector at DuPont. How had that prepared you? And maybe what was the the biggest shock to the system when it came to running your own business? A part of the reason for... uh, Wanting to do you know, less than 100,000 k's a year was at that age, we were starting a family. So I got married to Fiona, my wife, who's still putting up with me. <laughs> and you know, we were starting a family. We had you know, young children or a child just as we started, our eldest son, who's uh, 36. And we were planning to have more children. So tomorrow was a terrific town with a great community. And we thought that was a place that we'd like to stay rather than move up the corporate ladder and yeah so that the biggest challenge was at the time it all coincided with the deregulation of the grains industry we were awb agents interest rates were about 17 or 18 percent so i feel sorry for people that have got a lot of debt today but i can emphasize with them big we took on a business when interest rates were seen as a high risk business because they're you have an interest rate plus a risk factor, which were uh, another 2 or 3%. So we're around 20% risk to the bank. We've got a cat here too. As, as you get the cat that comes and takes up. Now, Terry, I'm going to ask you on this because obviously interest rates are a huge topic of conversation for everyone right now. But like, how did you set yourself up? How did you manage with the need to deliver one, not just to keep the business afloat when you've got that near 20%? repayments but you've also got people working and relying on your business for themselves and their families and also your own family on the side of all how did you actually make it work well we we're very fortunate in that brian and paul o'malley at kudamundra had they had a very successful business and saw us as a as a good risk and the ted family at area park were also a very you know very established business so it couldn't have survived without having yeah, the financial backing of, of long-term players in the ag industry. And it was a great mix because you've gone farming that are doing some private business whereas a, with a straight distribution company, so rural supplies. And that was just really taking off. The only thing before it had been trifluralin, really, and livestock was still a major part of the Tamora district. So it was about 70% livestock, 30% cropping when we went into business, whereas if you looked at tomorrow today, it'd be 90% cropping and 10% livestock. So the Riverina, it had a rapid change because of Yoni. So government policy, again, created a shift from livestock to cropping. And so if you were declared Yonis in that time, you had to destroy, you couldn't breed. So 
a lot of livestock went out of the farming environment because of yonis. Once they found someone with yonis, they were going to find a lot more neighbours and the whole area. So that was devastating to the farming community, especially breeders. And But it, it coincided with when we started a rural supplies business that was focusing on cropping. So it was terrific for our growth of our business. Yeah, not a bad time to be an agronomist, was it? It, it turned out to be the perfect timing. And that helped ease the, as the business was growing with cash flow, that really helped, you know, with the interest rates at the time. Stock turns are critical to survival. And agronomy, private agronomy was, was just starting as well because of the pullback from government on extension. So both of those things really helped the business grow at that time. So what was the instigator then for you to actually move on from that business and start to fade yourself out of that? Tamora area because you obviously were hugely involved in Tamora as a community, involved in the footy club, involved with plenty of growers, but you actually made the decision to move away from it. So what instigated that? Well, I guess our family was growing. That was They were going from primary school to high school. And if you look at the rural communities, a lot of, once high school comes along, a lot of young people actually leave um, the rural area and go to larger metropolitan areas for education and that that has a you know that has an impact on the family and also they start to develop you know you, you've got to think of your family and your kids as well they start to develop interests you know as they get older and ours were very keen on fishing you know and uh, hiking and uh, water and tomorrow is about six and a half hours from the coast we love fishing to go to the to the mountains, we go there every year when we had holidays. And they started fishing from a young age. That so was, you know, like a three or four hour trip to um, get to some water. And that wasn't the reason, but that was all a part of the. You know, that I enjoy corporate agriculture and I enjoy corporate farming, but I still do love family farming. And and that was, you know, starting to change as well. Not just around that area, but there was like. I think after we left, there was like 120 or 150,000 hectares of, of one corporate, which, and then there's two or three others as well. So your farming base changes dramatically from an advisor and supplier point of view. You know, when your farming changes, you know, the face of farming changes like that. That was one, but also I'd been to New Zealand and the UK with farmer groups, taking clients. We did a lot of trips. Every year I'd try and take our key growers to another state or another country and New Zealand and we did Canada and the US and looking at agriculture as you do on your holidays, that's what you do and what I still like to do. So everyone sort of got the bug of being in a medium rain, lower medium rainfall zone but wanting to produce more, you know, like higher rainfall zone results. That comes with success but also with failures, with or frost was the big one. You'd say drought was the big one, but we had two one in 100 year frosts in 98 and 2000, which pretty much took our crop from Horsham through to central New South Wales. I was on a frost committee with a grower that I respect a lot, Half Brothers from Juno Reefs, and there was a group of us set up a committee to try and work through the 98 one in 100 year frost because you've spent all your money for the year. You've got the best crops you think you're ever going to have. And frost is you know, devastating. So 
two droughts, you know, the 82 drought, the 94 drought, you can get through droughts. Farmers are, and business, are, you may hurt, and you may struggle, but frost is the one that really hurts because of you've spent all the money for the year. And I think going back to those dry land environments, their whole attitude has changed to frost, which has been an amazing you know, transition where they're still, and this year, El Nino is being talked about, but the growers in the that I talk to in the medium, the medium rainfall zone, even fringing on the lower rainfall zone, um, outside of the high rainfall zone, there's some of those people have already put out hundreds of tons of urea, expecting that the El Nino may kick in the spring. So it could be El Nino or it could be frost, but their whole attitude to growing crops has changed, and that's been amazing to watch that over the 20 years that I've been in Tasmania. What's happened on the mainland? And yeah, the growers now grow dry matter. If it's not grain, it's fodder. And there's more livestock coming back in to Australia. So that normally coincides that there's a market for the fodder if because that'll be leading into dry times. So they just grow dry matter. And dry matter can equal grain or it can equal uh, high yielding fodder crops, which is it's been amazing to watch. And just clarifying on that, Terry. So you're seeing that mindset shift from okay actually there is still opportunity if frost comes in there's opportunity as long as we know what decisions we have in front of us and what decisions we need to make to be able to turn that into hay silage etc yes so a part of the decision making processes in the past in Tasmania often been called the grim reaper because you're normally on a you're on a a fact-finding mission to determine the extent of frost damage so Tasmania, through the Midlands, that's the biggest uh, grain-growing area in the state, but it's also the basin. So there's the we- there's mountain ranges which provide the water. So I'm on the top of the mountain range on the western side, and there's mountain range on the eastern side, not as reliable a rainfall, but the middle of the state is the most arable, and it's only a medium rainfall zone. So without irrigation, it's not capable of producing these really high-yielding crops on a regular basis. But that also comes with lower elevation and the, the frost sink risk. So the, the Grim Reaper comes from you have to make very quick decisions to capture high-quality fodder, and you can't wait until the harvester gets there to determine the extent of frost damage. And, and I think from a, an advisor's point of view and consultants, there's a lot. That's pretty much your job's not done until the product's left the paddock now, whereas... You know, in the early days, you'd, well, there weren't a lot of fungicides used or there weren't a lot of inputs other, other than you know, nitrogen and some weed control. But now the crops are, are babied all the way until, until they're in the bin. So you're looking at the crops a lot more regularly than we're used to and therefore we can make decisions a lot quicker. Harry, you've mentioned a little bit about medium rainfall zone cropping but a project which you've been quite involved in is the high yielding cereals project so can you tell me a little bit more about that project itself and what your involvement in it was yeah so i guess i've always been very keen on supporting the GRDC. so it started off when we're in new south wales that i think we had 12 it started off as top crops so there were pathways for growers to be able to increase yield and top crop was one of the my check was one of the first and then so we've been i've been involved with the development of of systems to help um, improve outputs from cropping not only cropping but from pastures as well 
So I guess the hyper yield in cereals was the culmination of, of years of being involved with GRDC on grow groups. And I was a member of the regional cropping solution for the high rainfall zone for six years until I got kicked off that. That was the time period on there, but that was a really rewarding thing to do. And the hop yield and cereals came along after that, so I was very keen to be on the committee and be involved with the hop yield and cereals project, which was an ambitious project to try and double the yields of cereals in Tasmania. And that was a three-year project, and it achieved every aim that it set out to do, and a lot of it became an Australian-wide project from the you know, the results that were achieved from the Tasmanian Hop Yield Cereals Project, they, they set up um, similar sites in Western Australia, South Australia, uh, Victoria and New South Wales. So, yeah, it went for three years and then I think it's another three years of the uh, Hop Yield and Cereals across the country, which is up for renewal now and it'll have a, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But for the high-yielding cropping areas and also for irrigated cropping areas, which there is irrigation across a fair bit of Australia, especially South Australia and northeastern Victoria and New South Wales. There's a lot of irrigation. And to grow a, you know, a 10 tonne per hectare crop or above, which I think the aim was to get the average of 8 tonne per hectare for the Tasmanian crop in the first year, 2016 was a wet year. I think the highest yields were 16 tonne per hectare out of the plot. So it meant that it yes, let's look at this project and see what we need to do to be able to spread, extend that out to the farming community, yeah, which worked really well because it achieved its aims and our yields have increased for the state and growers are a lot more confident And uh, on the programs that were set up through the Hop Yield and Cereals site at Hagley. Terry, I can see when you talk about that and just have the success of the project but also talking about those huge tonnages that people were pulling that you get pretty excited and you start smiling about it when you're chatting. What's it like walking into one of those paddocks where you just know, like, nearly the perfect game players come together and it is the growers, the advisors, everything, say even the research and development years and years before has all come together. What's it like for you to walk into the paddock in those moments? Well, I guess it, it doesn't just sneak up on you because you've been planning it for probably three or four years prior to walking in the crop at the you know, when it's flowering or filling grain. So it's a long-term process to get to that point, to get the rewards. And I think that's what growers have actually learnt a lot more is the to really understand your rotations and your programs to be able to, there might only be 20% of the property that achieves that yield, but it, it is very exciting. And uh, I think that has helped. If you look at the uh, you, know, you would never have seen 120 tonne mother bins coming over on the spirit of Tasmania historically in state, but to see the equipment and the, it is becoming a grains industry. You know, it, it's truly becoming a grains industry, which has only just happened. It, it's been, you know, it was the last state in Australia to be deregulated as far as a grain marketing board goes. And that's all happened since I've been here. And to look at growers today, the equip, their state-of-the-art equipment, the capacity that their harvesters have and their capacity to take the harvest away has been, that's been amazing to watch for Tasmania. It's happening everywhere in Australia and has been longer than Tasmania, but it's, it does give you a good feeling to be on a harvester 
when the yield monitor is fluctuating between, you know, 10 and 18 tonne per hectare. Not bad at all. Now tell me, like I want to know, looking into the crystal ball, you've been involved in the, the grains industry for more than 40 years, Tassie for 20, 21 years. Where do you see it going into the future? Where are the next, I guess, opportunities? But do you see like another big boom opportunity on the horizon, especially in Tassie? Yeah, well, I think there is, Ollie, with um, – I think we'll see, like the UK has seen and other European countries, they've had to – because of the – or 99% of the population don't live in a rural area. So consumer demands have meant in those countries that there's been a, a massive swing back to uh, research and development to come up with cultivars that are high-yielding, more disease-resistant, we have moved away from it a fair bit. The whole world had with reliance on you know, pesticides and particularly fungicides to grow these really big crops. So plant breeding is critical to it. That's one thing. I've just lost my train of thought there, Ollie. What was that question again? I wanted to know, yeah, where do you see an opportunity on the horizon that could be the next big boom for agriculture, but especially in Tassie? So I was saying that... Uh, when you're on the harvester, the mule model is running from 10 tonne to 18 tonne. So there's the big gun. So because pivots, major type of irrigation development in Tasmania, that pretty much every farm that's growing these high yielding crops, even in the high rainfall zones, the very high rainfall zones, irrigation supplementation is the number one to increase the yield. But if you've got, a, got 80 or 120 hectare pivots now, so you say the average hectares is 60 hectares and you get 10 tonne or you get 16 tonne. That's a massive yield increase. So to be able to do that is where the big yield gains will come from. So there's a lot more technologies you know, that have been, been worked on for 20 or 30 years now that are starting to become every day. So particularly in Tasmania with a high rainfall irrigation, the air mapping is now standard which it wasn't four or five years ago. And even drainage like they do in the UK might cost a couple of thousand dollars a hectare, but underground drainage is being paid for very quickly. Variable rate pivots, so you don't overwater, underwater. Your harvesting time, here you can have a, say, a 12-tonne crop one ready to go, and if the crop's all fallen over and you can't get the moisture down, it quickly becomes a seven or eight tonne crop back to you know average for the rest of the farm so there's a lot more being looked at with you know with harvesting and getting the harvest away and crop standability so they're the big gains that i see outside of you know, your crop inputs and you know managing crop inputs one thing i'd love to know terry for you if you were 21 today and looking at with what you know from your 40 years in the industry but you're 21 years old would you pursue the same career path or where would you look to build a career as a 21-year-old in the grains industry today? Well, I think I'd still go down agronomy. Like I started that way and I, I stepped back from management even when I was here because I came over, I wanted to do full-time agronomy, but I guess because of the experience I'd had, I'd become the state manager for agronomy. And that, that was hard to get rid of because I love that too, mentoring and developing. So I think I'd still go down the agronomy path because that's how I started after I got into my career. And then that's how I wanted to finish my career. And now I'm retired, but still doing some part-time work and 
some things that I really enjoy, some high-level stuff, which is terrific, and uh, a little bit of mentoring. So I think I'd stick with this, but I'd, I'd recommend that anyone that wanted to do ag, whatever, the world is your oyster. Now, there's so much demand and so few people that can take up the workload that you can do anything you want in ag. Absolutely. Now, Terry, we've got five questions which we're asking everyone that come on the GRDC and Conversation podcast. They're very simple. We just want the first things that come to your mind. No need to overthink it, and we're not holding you to ransom or anything on your answers. They're a bit of fun. But wanted to ask you first up, Terry, what's your favourite grain-based dish? Oats. I really, I really like oats. and oats. The oat industry needs more support. Not a bad call. Who are three people, if you could invite anyone alive today or at any time in history around for a bit of oats, maybe let's say a bowl of porridge, who would be the three people that you'd invite around? Uh, well, I mightn't like porridge, so <laughs> I do like a, I like a lot of other grains, but I guess I've changed a bit in that as a 60-year-old, I started to become allergic to gluten, which is I've been the greatest critic of dietary fads and people that are Yes, this gluten intolerance. Well, I firsthand I've experienced that now. So that's why my favourite pasta dish or bread or sourdough has changed a little bit. But who would I invite? Well, I have to give a lot of thanks to a fellow called Ron Martin who hasn't been with us for a long time. But he was a wheat breeder based at Tamora and one of the smartest men that I'd ever met. There was another, a farmer there who taught me more about agriculture than I would probably ever learn. His name is, well, there are two farmers, Neville Thompson, and the Thompson family still farm at Tamora, but Neville was a great man, a great farmer, and a very you know, smart man. And I really like Nick Poole as far as agronomists in Australia today. Uh, Nick Poole is definitely, he would be the best researcher that I've seen and extender of research. He's captivating, and he can relate to anybody at any level. It's such an incredible skill set, isn't it, in that extension world to be able to go and take the deep, heavy topics but actually be able to communicate it is such a skill. Yeah. So Ron Martin, being a breeder, um, well, I don't know if all breeders are introverted, but he, they can't really relate to many people, but they are amazing people. You know, they're just the, that was before computers. He could do five or 6,000 crosses on a piece of paper. He was incredible, his mind, but genius, a true genius. And then from a farm, you had to pick a farmer. Well, there's a lot of people that I look up to in farming because they they're the ones who drive research and drive ag. But then you need someone to extend it. So Nick Poole was definitely there. The three at the moment could change tomorrow. <laughs> no, nah, let's run with that. Now, Terry, what was your first ever job? Um, my first ever job when I was about. 14 years old, I guess I'd been on a, you know, doing jobs at home on the farm, but I got a paid job. One of our neighbours at Trundle had to have an operation, which was, it was right at the point of harvest, and I, I think I was 13 or 14, and I had to quickly have a demonstration on how to operate a Sunshine McKay Sunshine Harvester. So that was a 12-bag bin, 52 grease nipples, had to be done twice a day, and to take a harvest off, which um, took me about uh, seven weeks, I think, or eight weeks. And it was a really good experience because Mary Ryan, Ted was in hospital for 
quite a bit. He got home, and, but she was a great cook, so I was, I was really well looked after. That was my first paid job. Baptism by fire. Yeah. No, it was, everything went okay. I didn't wreck anything. It was good. Now, what's something you've got on your bucket list, Terry? On my bucket list? Yes. I'd love to go back to the cereals in the UK. That's an amazing field, eh? So, yeah, we plan to get back sometime to the UK and go to cereals. And one final question. What's a question that you'd like us to ask someone else on the next series of GRDC In Conversation? That's a hard one, Ollie. What would I like you to ask the next person? Yeah, or just anything that you're wondering, a question that's top of mind, something you're curious about. Um, I'm curious about, which is highly irrelevant to probably who you're going to ask, but our, winter, our Australian winter breeding program for hot, you know, for grazing grain crops, we're still growing a variety in Tasmania that's historic as a grain crop, but there's been no replacement. So is that happening? Is the winter breeding program happening in Australia? I'm not a, aware of it. The CSIRO used to have a pretty strong program, and that's where a lot of these come from. There's a, a lot of the businesses are not looking at it because Australia is a low to medium rainfall cropping environment. So the high rainfall irrigated are, are getting material from Europe and the UK. So is that my question would probably be to, I don't know who it's to, but you know, the high rainfall zone for grazing and grain, you know, especially where frost is a risk. Well, Terry, thank you so much for joining us and having a chat. It's been really interesting to sit down and hear about your journey and career from government to part. Well, I think starting off with Harvest as a 13 or 14-year-old and doing such a big job for your neighbour through to working in government departments, the the private sector, and then obviously moving from the mainland down to Tassie. And thank you for sitting down and spending a bit of time to chat about it. No worries. Thanks, Ollie. Chat to you soon. See you, Terry. Bye then. Well, that's it. That is the final episode on this first year of GRDC In Conversation. It has been fascinating sitting down with the 25 different guests involved in the southern grains industry from research, advisory, farmers, contracting, pretty well everything in between. If you enjoyed this podcast, please reach out to your local GRDC rep. We'd love to get some recommendations for the next season, which hopefully drops at a very opportune time as we start to head into harvest. But between now and then, may the seasons be favourable, the rain fall gently, and you have health and happiness. Look forward to joining you for the next time we sit down for GRDC and conversations. Look after yourself and keep your ears and eyes peeled for the next version. Cheers.